you lift up just the scary, crazy things that happen in this world, and specifically over these last few weeks. Father, we, we give them to you because we don't always understand, but your plan is bigger. Father, we just pray that you would guide us into obedience with you, living out all that your son taught to us. We know that is the great healer of all wounds. Father, we lift up this message over the next few weeks. We, we pray that you would just be speaking into our hearts about what it means to be a Christ-like, a godly community. And we give that to you today in your dear son's name. Amen. So, <clears throat> we're going to go into Philippians. But here's the crazy thing. <laughs> I'm just going to give you a little background on Philippians, but we're going to read very little out of Philippians today. Uh, I know that sounds odd. You're going, Sean, did you actually go to school to ever teach a sermon? Don't set us up and then let it go. But no, the reality is um, we have to start at the beginning. And we're literally going to start at the beginning. Now, I want to kind of be specific. We're going to start at our beginning. God is timeless. But I wanted to lay a foundation a little bit first of what the book of Philippians is and then lay even a bigger foundation of what the model of community is. So if you do want to turn to Philippians, we'll be in there a couple times. <clears throat> but Philippians is a letter written by Paul to the church in Philippi. This is a special church, special people to Paul. Uh, Philippi is a special city. In Acts chapter 16, it actually says that it was the leading city in this area. The book of uh, Philippians was probably written between 61 and 62. Paul was in chains. He was handcuffed to a Roman soldier, a Roman guard, 24-7. They probably switched out every six to nine hours, uh, which is great. Here's something that's really cool. That means Paul was building a new community that was forced to be with him. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I look at that and go, I'll be chained to Paul. I'd love to hear what he has to say. But think of that. Talk about bully pulpit. You know, I, I love the fact that I get to speak on community as the pastor who oversees our discipleship community right before the month of August where I will be building new community groups. I've got a bully pulpit. I'm going to use it. But think of Paul being chained to a Roman guard 24-7. And we're going to hear some really amazing stuff of the impact that that had. But most people believe he was actually in Rome this time. Most theologians, most scholars believe that by this time he's at the very end of his life. We'll see some cues of that over the next few weeks as we dig into Philippians. Um, <clears throat> some believe he could have been um, in Caesarea, um, could have been in Ephesus. Um, but either way, no matter what, he was chained for Christ, which is an amazing thing. But he's writing to the church in Philippi, which we get a picture of in Acts 16. We see in Acts 16, Paul is on his second missionary trip. He's heading into Europe for the first time. The gospel is going into Europe. The gospel is spreading. Paul's ultimate goal, we find out uh, throughout history and throughout Romans, is he wants to get to Spain. Because that's kind of the end of the known world of civilization at that time. He's working his way that way. But this is the first foray into Europe. And so on the way, he grabs up Timothy. 
Timothy is now going to be his son as a disciple. Timothy is going to be part of this ministry, learning the ropes. It's all about community. He's growing the community. Later on, he plants Timothy in one of the leading churches in Asia Minor in Ephesus, uh, where he will continue to lead this church as a young man. He's traveling with Silas, uh, one of his co-missionaries, on this second missionary trip. But he goes through Philippi in the book of uh, book of uh, sixteen of uh, excuse me chapter sixteen of the book of Acts, and it's really not a great experience <laughs> overall. The first one is great. He meets the household of Lydia. Lydia is one of the leading women in this area. She is a seller, um, a merchant of purple cloth, which really goes to the most rich and royal, the highest in society. So this is a woman with some actual, probably some impressive clout in her community. And her entire household hears the gospel and gives their lives to the Lord. The next scenario is probably not as nice. Paul and Silas are preaching, and a group of folks, uh, Jewish folks, raise up against him, and he ends up finding himself in jail. Before going to jail, they're beaten with rods, but while they're in jail, this incredible thing happens. The doors to all the cells are shaken open, they're singing hymns, And the jailer realizes it, and right before he gets ready to just end it, because he knows he's not going to be found really well in the eyes of his leaders, Paul and Silas and the rest, not just Paul and Silas, but the rest of the prisoners, yell from their cells, we're still here. We didn't leave. And the jailer is so overwhelmed by this that he takes Paul and Silas, he takes them out of their cell. This happens just overnight. It's an amazing story, just overnight. He takes them back to his home, helps them clean their wounds. They're that badly bruised and beaten. He hears the gospel, and he and his entire household come to know Jesus. Then he takes Paul and Silas back to the jail, which is just this kind of weird turn, a little plot twist. And then Paul and Silas proclaim their citizenship as Romans, which takes us back to an important point in in the Philippian church. The town of Philippi is a Roman colony. Not only is it a Roman colony, it's an italic colony, which means that the Roman emperor said, this is actually Italian soil, hundreds of miles away which meant anyone born there was a Roman citizen. So they understood this idea of citizenship. And because they were a leading city, they were a Roman city, when they proclaimed their Roman citizenship, everybody got afraid because you're not allowed to do anything to a Roman citizen without a trial. So all the leaders say, hey, can we just quietly release you? And Paul and Silas say, no, I want you to proclaim that I'm, you did this to us. And they do, and they ask them to leave. This is about all we have of the picture of the history of Paul and the Philippians and his direct interaction. Yet something blossoms out of this special city. Something amazing starts. It's a a church that that looks at itself uh, as part of Paul's community. And so we see Paul now in the book of Philippians writing to them. Philippians is one of my favorites 
I actually throughout my ministry have asked people to memorize the entire part of chapter 2 where it talks about Paul, it talks about Jesus as a servant. We see something really special as Paul speaks to him, but we also see Paul moving into some issues. But this idea of citizenship in this community overflows into Paul's writing in Philippians. So if you do have your Bible open to Philippians in chapter 1, verse 27, it says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith and the gospel. And in chapter 3, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew that they were proud. They had a nationalism. They had a pride in their town. They probably painted a gigantic P in their, their county, their little square beside their gazebo. Um, if you're not from Wadsworth, it's an inside joke. <clears throat> but they look at their city as very important. And they look at their citizenship as very important. And Paul says, listen, in a manner, if you have the NIV in that verse in 27, it says, conduct yourself. It's actually a word that implies your social standing as a citizen. Do that well. And then in 3.20, we see him actually tighten in on this idea and say, as a citizen, your citizenship isn't here. I'm not an Ohioan. I'm not an American. I'm not a Wadsworthian. I'm a citizen of heaven. And he's telling these people that that's who you are. That is your community. It's amazing what Paul is trying to get across to them. He goes a little deeper, and this is where we're going to kind of sit for the next four weeks. He goes deeper into the aspects, the, the implementation of good community. He does things like he encourages them. He corrects them. He advises them. He enlightens them. These are things that he is doing to help build them in a healthy community. We see Paul's foundation, though, throughout the book of Philippians. He mentions the Godhead in parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, over 70 times in just four chapters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And this is Paul setting up a model that he is living out. He talks about Jesus. He talks about God. He talks about the Holy Spirit a lot and how they interact. Like I said earlier, we're not going to sit too much in the book of Philippians today. We're going to bounce around a little bit. uh, If you can follow along, by all means. But we're going to dig into some scripture because what Paul is doing is he's setting up the model of the Godhead. The ministry of community and relationship started before Philippi was even a city. It wasn't formed until 42 B.C., about. The model of community was formed well before any of us had breath, before anyone had breath. The idea of community, that relationship, is seen in the Trinity. And so we're going to talk a little bit about where Paul 
gathers, we see it through all of his letters, where he gathers this idea of how we should be as a community. How the Godhead models community. This is not going to be (laughs) a a message that goes deep into the mystery of Trinity. Um, No one truly, truly understands that. And if they say they truly got a grasp on the entirety of Trinity, they're fooling themselves because I think there's some mystery there that God wants us to have. And I'm okay with that. But we are going to touch a little bit on their roles together, their mission together as the Godhead. It's the ultimate community, it's the model, and Philippians is the practice. So next week, we're going to start into Philippians and what that looks like. But today, let's dig into the Godhead. Community, that idea, the word, has a lot of roots. It has a lot of offshoots. We see it in things like communion, common. There's another big word, it's it's a, it's a big biblical word, word called koinonia, and it speaks into the idea of community and fellowship, spiritual fellowship. We see in the Godhead, we see three parts, three individuals, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, each of them working together without conflict or envy. We see it at the very beginning when we look at the creation. God is the catalyst for growth. He's the one who starts things in motion. We see it in Genesis 1-3. And God said, it just those three words. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. You see, the Father speaks and things happen. His role is, is the purveyor of good things. We're going to speak into that a little, a little bit. But he makes these things happen. He sets things in motion. That is his role in the Godhead. He's this catalyst for growth. He's this catalyst for things happening. And then we see Jesus even at creation and the Holy Spirit. First, we see the Holy Spirit in his part. He's the encourager. He gives this thing called empowerment. And in Genesis 1-2, it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit cares for and nurtures us. And Jesus isn't left out at the creation. You see, Jesus is the doer. He's the servant part of this incredible community. In John 1, 3, all things were made through him. And the him here is the word, it is Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. So we see right from the very beginning We see the Trinity, we see the Godhead, each individual with a role, and then that role carried out in mission. Paul sees that. The church in Philippi sees that. The church in Philippi sees it so much that when things start getting a little rough and their community starts to be in pain, something instantly has to happen. They look for ways to fix it. Paul is going to help them with that. One of the things that's important in this thought, though, because I think we become arrogant in thinking that we kind of sway God in certain things, but the family model was in place before there was any family here. 
the Father, the Son, they existed before we knew what father, son, daughter, wife, husband, cousin, aunt, uncle looked like. I believe that if you take scripture as a whole, you will realize that there is very little that isn't already spoken about here that we need to know. And from the very beginning, we see God setting up a model of a healthy family, which is another community. We sometimes go, oh gosh, he probably does that for us because we understand what father is. No, no, he implemented father and then we got caught up. He's the purveyor, he's the giver of all things. He was the catalyst for that idea, the catalyst for that growth. We could take it a step further. And we could look into the idea of salvation, the fact of salvation. Each part of the Godhead has a role in that as part of the community. God sends, you look at John chapter 3, one of the verses we all memorized For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But we don't want to stop there because it goes on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God was the catalyst for salvation through the sending of Jesus. He sent. It was his idea. In John chapter 1, we can see it even more. He sent Jesus the message. I love the way it says it. And he planted his tent. He set up his tent in our neighborhood. He sent Jesus. God, the Father, set that in motion. And in salvation, we see Jesus is the doer. He's the one that serves ultimately. And here is a great scripture out of 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. God sent, Jesus came and did, and at the very end of that scripture, we see the next step. The Holy Spirit, who's the caregiver, the one who empowers us right now. John 14, 16, 17, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. God sends. God gives. He will be to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. I want to be very specific. The Holy Spirit's not an it or a thing. You know him because he dwells within you and will be in you. Holy Spirit comes, empowers, encouraged, cares for. Ephesians 1 goes a little further. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, Jesus, the doer, the servant, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit comes, and we'll look into that a little bit when we dig into Philippians in the first chapter, but he comes and he completes this mission that the Godhead has for us, this community, these three individuals' role in our lives of taking us from death to life. And sometimes that's all we speak of, the death to life. We go, I gave my life to Jesus. 
But there's something really important after that because Jesus, in the Godhead, the Father then sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to move us forward in kingdom work. You know, I think that we look at this and we, we, we apply our own relationships to this and going, well, gosh, you know, well, if they're the Godhead, they're three in one, it doesn't seem like there's equality there. It seems like the Father has more power than the Son. The Son, maybe more so than the Holy Spirit. And what we're doing there is we're applying our own relationships to something that we don't necessarily understand. It's kind of our human nature to, to try to grasp at answers. But the reality is if we take it a step further, we see this incredible relationship happening without envy, without conflict, but here, I'll do it. This is it. I debated on whether I was going to do this. Raise your hand if you've ever had conflict in your family. <laughs> if you left your hands down, I want to see you afterwards, and I want to know how you did that. But we all have it. We all have conflict in our family. We all look at someone and go, well, there's not equality here. Someone is holding something over me, so I must be less than them. And so then what we do is we apply that thinking, and, and here's the deal, it's sinful thinking. <laughs> it's that idea of conflict in our families, in our communities, it, it, it's out of sin, it's, it's, we're broken people. But then we applied that flawed thinking to how the Godhead works and go, well then, there's gotta be a hierarchy there. Well, it's circular because it's equal. Because if we take it a step further and we look in, um, <clears throat> into the Father a little deeper, in 1 Corinthians 11.3, it talks of God being the head. It says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So we see that and we go, okay, I understand how head works. That means he's over but if we go deeper into Ephesians, when it speaks of basically this same mere image, it talks about submitting to one another. We also see the Father as giver. He's a giver of good things. In James 1.17, every good gift and every special and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. His gifts are perfect gifts, and they're unchangeable. It makes me sad that as part of this community, we don't get that sometimes. Take his perfect gifts, use them because they're perfect. But sometimes, again, we bring in our sinful natures and we taint that perfect gift, and then we lose sight of it, and sometimes we don't even use it. He's also the giver of Jesus. We already hit on that in John chapter 3. He's the giver of the Spirit. We already hit that in John chapter 14. He's also the giver of our identity. Remember, we spoke to this earlier that God gave us the idea for family. But he goes even further and gives us our own identity. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, 15. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. You see, God had this idea of family, this identity for us, before we even knew what it looked like. He gave that to us. He's the giver of good things. And that is the catalyst for growth. When we're given something good, we use it. 
We put into action. We learn things through God. Taking the son a little deeper. Looking at the son as servant. He called himself that. I'm not calling him that. I want to believe it. I want to live it. But he is a servant. John 8, 28. He's the servant of God. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. The Father is giver of growth, teaching here. And he who sent me, he has not left me alone, for I will always do the things that are pleasing to him. When you serve someone, you hope that it pleases them. And and Jesus is setting up this incredible model of going, that's how servant-heartedness looks. He's a servant first to the Father. He's a servant to us and for us. He came as incarnate God. In Philippians, we'll hit on a few weeks. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, there's that mystery of Godhead, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped. You see, we want to look at things and quantitate those things. Am I more important than that person? Is that person more important than me? And Jesus said, no. This is not something that I wish to even think about. I gave it up so that you would understand how important him as servant really is. It goes on, he says, he emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, even born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. He came as servant, incarnate God, to us. That's his role. That's his mission as servant. He came as high priest. In Hebrews 7, it says this, but he holds his priesthood permanently. Priests should serve. Last summer, um, I shared with you guys out of 1 Peter, and we talked about that holy priesthood for all of us. But that holy priesthood is not a badge. It's not a title just for the title's sake. It's a title for us then to do something with. And the do here we see is serve each other. Just as Christ did. And we see one more servant part of Jesus, the way he serves the church. The way he serves the body here on earth. Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Which is... His body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are the representation of him. And if we just learn that Jesus is a servant, then we should be too. We represent him because he's the head of us. The Holy Spirit's role, his his mission as caregiver, as helper, as one who empowers, goes beyond things that we truly understand because, like I said earlier, we don't don't even see him. The world doesn't even know him. 
But one of his roles is to move the kingdom forward. That's, that's the church, moving it forward closer to that glorious day of Jesus' returning. In John 16, 7, 8 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. This is Jesus speaking. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Jesus gives us a picture of going, look, he's really important. He's not less than me. He's trying to make us understand he is me, but this is the Holy Spirit's role, his mission. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit will empower us. The Holy Spirit will allow us to see the truth. He will care for us by convicting our hearts, driving us closer to righteousness. It's still a servant model, but this really cool thing, Jesus was incarnate, which the, the root of that word is this, it, it, carne asada, I go to food, but it's the idea of meat. Jesus is God with skin on. That is oversimplifying it, I get it. But the Holy Spirit is with us. We do not have the incarnate Jesus here with us. We have the Holy Spirit, and there's equality in the mission and role and what the Holy Spirit does for us. He empowers us, and this is a great scripture out of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I don't know about you, but I don't always feel, especially after this last couple of weeks, I don't always feel like we get power. I don't think that we understand that we have it. Not because of our own doing. I am powerless without the Holy Spirit. He gives us power, again, to move his kingdom forward where I started today. I'm just going to preach Jesus. That is the fix for all of these problems. And moving his kingdom forward, and the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do that. Not my power, not your power, not your encouragement, honestly. Because as human nature goes, if it was just yours, it would fall short. But the Holy Spirit encourages you to encourage me, gives us all power, and moves us forward. He reveals truth. There's multiple scriptures. I could go on for days, all the things that the Godhead does. I feel like I look at this and go, gosh, there's so much more I want to. It's the teacher in me. That's why I don't preach all the time. I got too many words. If you just sit with me anytime, you're going, Sean, can I speak? I just got too many words, and this is one of those things that I'm just like, oh my gosh, I want to tell you more about this. But he reveals truth in John 16, uh, verses 13 through 14. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, not just half the truth, not just some of the truth, all the truth. And here's the deal. <clears throat> A lot of the things that get the church world in trouble that allows for an entire lost world to look at us as hypocrites, to look at us as people who don't know what we're talking about, that looks at us as a people who contradict themselves, is because we don't take the whole truth of the word. We choose pieces and parts of it, and then our human nature corrupts it. There's so many things in here 
that we don't even talk about. It's the whole truth. It's that scripture, uh, 2 Timothy. For the word of God is breathed into man. That's the Holy Spirit breathing into us to then use for teaching, rebuking, raising up in righteousness. He reveals all church truth. He will declare all things to come. He will glorify me. Again, see the Spirit serving Jesus. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will take the truth of Jesus and he will set that on our hearts and make it real every day. He gives us direction. 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke through God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. I do not ever, and it's just, it's one of these things, it's, it's this idea that the teachers are held to a higher account. Scripture is very clear in that. I don't ever want to speak out of what I have to say. I hope, I hope that I am open enough to the movement of the Holy Spirit that he would carry me along. That I'm just going, wee! Let's do this. I know for a fact, though, and this is just me being open and, and maybe a little bit of repentance, I know for a fact that I don't always do that. I bring my own agenda sometimes. And those, honestly, the moments when I uh, bring my own agenda is when I use this incorrectly to try to get a point across. I want to be carried along by the Holy Spirit. He gives me direction. It's part of who he is as a caregiver. We also see the Holy Spirit, and this is where we'll start moving into this idea of equality and submission and role. We see the Holy Spirit affecting who Christ is. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, full, oh gosh, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. See, Jesus didn't look at his role in the Godhead as a hierarchy. He looked at his role and the other roles of the Godhead as, as this incredible submission and equality and mission and role. And he was led by the Holy Spirit. Luke 4 goes on in verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And I want to be sure that you understand that if your scripture doesn't capitalize that Spirit, get a new Bible. <laughs> it's the Spirit. It is the individual. It is he who is part of the Godhead. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country because the Spirit moved through Jesus. You see, this equality, this submission, this movement in the Godhead, we don't truly understand it. We see Jesus in the garden praying to God, to the Father, saying, hey, if you could take this cup, but if not... I'll do what you've asked me to do, what you've sent me to do the way that you've sent me to do it. We see that relationship. We see the submission. But then in the Great Commission, we see Jesus saying, all authority has been given to me by the Father. 
All authority. Not some, but all. So now we see this, okay, how does that work? Again, that's our human minds wanting to put everything on different places. We want to figure things out. We see equality and submission happening at the same time. So the father sends, the son submits. The son has all authority, the father relinquishes it. The spirit indwells, and the son takes his guidance. The son speaks, and the spirit comes. Like I said, there's, there's this circle instead of different levels. It's not this bar graph of equality or inequality or stature or status. It's this circle. It's maybe even more spherical, this idea that, that they see themselves as part of an incredible plan, an incredible community and relationship that we then live out. Remember, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Philippians is a book about imitation. Philippians is a book that says, be this way, like Christ, like the Father, like the Holy Spirit. Be someone that helps your community grow. Be someone that helps your community serve. Be someone that helps your community move forward in giving care. Paul says, I follow this. Will you follow it with me? If anyone saw my uh, Instagram yesterday, as I was doing my final prep, I was just looking at the book of Acts, and, and uh, I was in 16 where Philippi uh, is being ministered to, and then I went into 17 where they move into more of Europe as they move towards Thessalonica. <clears throat> and there is this point in Scripture that I'm almost ashamed I've never, ever allowed it to stick. And it's these people who are like, they called them the rabble. These people who are just against everything that Paul and Silas and Timothy were trying to share about this community. And their response was, these men are turning the world upside down. And then I put in the margin, am I turning the world upside down? That's what I wrote, question mark. You see, the world thinks it's getting turned upside down and all the mess that's going on right now. But God calls us, his community, following after the first community. The topic, the, the title for this message was, they are, all caps, they, so we should be. <laughs> We should be the ones turning the world upside down. And we are allowed and able and empowered to do that because of this first community, the first family, the Trinity. You see, we're image bearers. Let's go back, make that big circle back to the beginning. At the beginning, God created us to be like him. In, first, in the first chapter, verse 26 of Genesis. Then said God, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness. We learned in John chapter 1, Jesus was there. We learned in Genesis chapter 1, the Holy Spirit was there. We know the Father is speaking this into happening. So our, O-U-R, is the first family the first community, the Godhead. 
Let's make them in our image. And if that is true, then we are image bearers. If that is true, then we should have components, parts, shadows sometimes, but it should be there of what the Godhead looks like. We should be folks who are catalysts for growth. We should be folks who are serving sacrificially. He called the Philippians to serve sacrificially. We should be people that are looking for ways to empower and care for other people. We're image bearers. That's our role in the community. Are you living up to your role? Next three weeks, we're going to be breaking down those three components. We're going to be breaking down the growth, the care, and the serve. There's really not a hierarchy of order, just like there's not a hierarchy in the Trinity. So the order is kind of, well, I just decided. I threw darts at an order on the thing. But the reality is the one thing I didn't want to do was put serve in the middle. I wanted to put serve at the end. You know, they say leave everybody in a, in a message. You all learn this in Communication 101. Leave them with the thing that you want them to remember. I want you to remember Jesus. That last week of this month, we're going to talk about Jesus because he truly serves all of us. One of the things that I'm just doing this week is we're setting the table. You'll hear me speak of this throughout the next three weeks. And the picture, I wanted to get a big barn table and just put it right here. Um, But the barn table I was looking at was at Scott's house and it was way too big and heavy and I'm just lazy. Um, So I just got Christy to find a really cool picture. But when I speak of community, I will always speak of it like a dinner table. Last week we came You're going to find a root word here. We came together in communion. Community, koinonia, spiritual fellowship. We're going to finish this series on the 31st, coming to the table again. After hearing about Jesus. But I think that if the table is right, if the table is after this model at your house and in your communities, then good things happen around the table. You're sent You're cared for. You're served. Sometimes you're rebuked. (laughs) We're going to be setting this table for the next month because we are image bearers of a table that was uh, set before we even knew what time was. It was set by a community, a fellowship, a koinonia that we should look like. Let's pray. Father God, I just, I come humbly before you recognizing that I cannot at all give an accurate picture of who you are as the Godhead, as the Trinity. Father, thank you for allowing us the space to have mystery. But thank you more for being clear on the roles, the things that you have done through your different parts this mission to us. Father, I pray that we would see that community in our own lives. 
we'd see that community on a day-to-day basis as we move out into the larger community and bring them closer to you. Father, I pray for this day. We give it to you in your dear son's name. Amen.